Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Backchat. Backchat. Your alternative to talk back. Proudly supported by the Judith Nielsen Institute. It's Saturday, April 3rd, and you're listening to Backchat, where we break down the news you don't want to miss. Before we begin today, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Gadigal land and pay our respects to Elders past and present. I'm Chantelle Alcouri. And I'm Millie Roberts. Coming up on the show today, we're talking the death of Melody Bruno, a Filipina trans woman failed by New South Wales' justice system. We'll also hear your worst period stories from primary and high school, and we're not talking about punctuation marks. But first, we investigate the threat to social housing in Waterloo as it undergoes one of the biggest redevelopments in Sydney, leaving residents in the dark about their future. And we want to hear from you. Text us in on 0409 945 945 or tweet us at BackchatFBI. You're an FBI 94.5. If you've ever walked through Waterloo, you'll recognise the rich culture and diversity that fills its streets. Of course, it doesn't come without its faults, but the government's plans to gentrify the area threatens to erase a long-standing community. Chantel and Backchat producer Tanita Razagi take us through the community's plea to save social housing in one of the biggest redevelopments in Sydney. My name is Nancy. We are every morning Tai Chi. I love here. They're beautiful. Good community, good friend. This is the sound of Waterloo's social housing community. Nancy is spending her Wednesday evening catching up with a group of friends to practice Tai Chi. On the other end of the basketball court, a group of teenagers are seen playing ball. The park is filled with people walking their dogs and chatting on benches. It's an open community. The Waterloo Estate is one of the largest public housing estates in New South Wales, and it's currently undergoing one of the biggest redevelopments in Sydney. The precinct is being transformed into the densest residential landscape in Australia, despite concerns being raised by its local residents. But the bridge between social housing and private developers is greater than ever. Many residents and community members have spent the last six years strongly opposing these development plans in fears that Waterloo's history and distinct character will be erased along with its social housing. Isaac Garzon. I've been living since 1994 here. I've been in Australia in November 30 years. We have been very anxious about everything that's happening around changes. Sometimes they say one thing, Sometimes another thing. We are not sure what is going to happen. Yeah, my name is Veronica Tavo, and I've been living here since 2001. And they're moving all of us, and I'm not happy about that. It'll break up community for sure. That's the problem I've got with it. And I know most of the people here. Thousands of Waterloo residents are still awaiting their fates as plans constantly change. Many are claiming radio silence and mixed messages from the New South Wales government and they're demanding answers on what their future will look like. We contacted the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian who declined to comment on the matter. Richard Weeks is the organiser for the Waterloo Public Housing Action Group and has lived in Waterloo for the last 10 years. The government has done nothing for this community. They've engaged consultants to keep away from it. Don't even respond to our letters. Do not respond to our emails. She just ignores us. In some other uh, housing commission locations, they have not accomplished the promises. They promised at the beginning, oh, we are going to move you out and coming back. No cost for you. John Barrich is a property developer in Sydney. He says that the government is trying to accommodate for its growing population, which is estimated to be 8 million by 2050. 
they're trying to accommodate for our own 24-7 New York City. It's cheaper for them to knock down land that they already own, existing culture, uh, social area, and redevelop it entirely. Obviously, part of their strategy, part of it is to allocate social housing and part of it to allocate the growth of new redevelopment, residential development, new shopping centres, new precincts, etc., etc. If there is rationale, if they can provide justification for this precinct to be relocated that supports or follows that strategy, then the state government is going to stand for approval. And the other side can't do anything because technically it's not their land. Waterloo South has a large elderly population, with 40% of residents aged 50 years and over. The 25-year plan is said to welcome all patrons that were relocated back to the new redevelopments. In the meantime, they have no control of where that relocation is. John says that the promise of their return in 25 years is unattainable. So there's going to be more new people in there, but they're, most likely they're not going to be the same people that are currently living there that want to go back. So they would have lost all their cultural values that they've attached to the land. Jared Vagona, I've been living in Waterloo for 12 years, though I've known people in here for over 30. You have an area that is 100% public housing, and they claim, oh, we're going to redevelop it and go 70-30, 30% public housing. What, they're going to steal 70% of it from the public, are they? The waiting lists for public housing have grown enormously. Now, you need more public housing, not less. You can't give public land to private, as public land belongs to the people of Australia. The government are only the caretakers of it. Well, they should actually be for the people who keep the city running. You know, your bus drivers, your train drivers, your cleaners, etc. They keep things running, but they can't afford to live in the city. You know, it used to be that public housing was for the public. It should still be. Contractors just using it as a money sink. But many in the community remain passionate about the diverse culture and the beauty of Waterloo. We lo love the area. The area is very good because very convenient for all the, the neighbours, very close to every facility, transport, shopping, schools, universities. Life here, it's just uh, about the whole world here, so we should take a note of this because everybody's fighting for, you know, for land. Well, we all have it here and why should we destroy a home? Yeah, this is a place to be. It's just such a diverse culture. Every single person you meet in this community has a story to tell. And I've met some of the most incredible people in this area, people that have got skills and knowledge like and expertise behind them. Some of their talents are so wasted because nobody takes the time to recognise how capable and how extraordinary some of these people really are. That was Backchat's special investigation on redevelopments in Waterloo that are threatening vital social housing. So, Chantelle, you actually spoke with some of the residents. What was it like to hear from them firsthand? I mean, everyone was so passionate about Waterloo and obviously they admit that the conditions that they're living in aren't perfect, but they're just demanding, um, you know, social work in the community mm. and to be looked after. And they've been there for so long the fact that they don't know what their future like it looks like is is terrifying. No, oh, absolutely. 
Yeah, well, don't go anywhere because up next we're going full Dolly Doctor to talk about embarrassing high school period stories. And we want to hear yours. It's safe space, so spill on 0409 945 945. Like, not to call out myself, but I literally had an embarrassing example from, like, last week. I think I'll spare you guys. It's all right. But that's coming up after the break. So keep it locked on FBI 94.5. This next song is so hot. This is Kimmy featuring Kwame with the track name. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5. In an exciting turn of events, this week the New South Wales Department of Education began its trial of free menstrual hygiene products for 30 schools across Western Sydney and Dubbo. That's so good. It's so refreshing to finally see some action in that department. We've been fighting for it for ages and it's cool to note that it's actually free for both the schools and the students. So it's not like you, the school will actually have to pay out of pocket, which is awesome. I was reading in the statement that this will only be trialled in girls' bathrooms, so I'm kind of hoping that that extends to accommodate all gendered bathrooms and all people who menstruate, but, you know, small wins. Yeah, well, the state government says the aim of the trial is to reduce disadvantage, and there was a report by Share the Dignity that said there's a lack of awareness and access for young people who menstruate. And I guess on that note, what interests me most about periods and menstruation is that there's still so much taboo around it and I just want to normalize it and I'm sure you do too so and especially just celebrating the next generation in New South Wales not having as many anecdotes as we all do so let's talk about periods yeah yeah let's do it well we asked you guys before the break what high school horror stories you had and we've got quite a few texts in Bella from Redfern said someone asked me why I'd go to the toilet in between every class and I couldn't bring myself to say I have heavy periods and need to change my tampon every hour so I just said I had a UTI. I just can't believe that it is more socially acceptable to have a UTI than bleeding Yeah, I feel like neither should be embarrassing but you got to do what you got to do. You got to do what you got to do. And then Alex in Chatswood said, I got my period in my year seven French oral and written exam. That's already a red flag. <laughs> I yep. was in the cohort with over 200 students and happened to be sitting in the front row with the door at the back of the hall when I realized I ran out crying and everyone saw the stain on my white and maroon uniform. Front office had to call my mom to pick me up and everything. That's sad. That's really sad, but I still call my mom for period emergencies to oh, this day. Constantly. Weekly. Hey, hey, Queen, can you, have to, can you pick, <laughs> pick me, me up? up? <laughs> yeah, well, Bella in Forbes also sent a great text in. She said, I was walking to my final class of the day and I had an older girl tap me on the shoulder and say, I just thought you should know you've got something on the back of your dress. That's horrific, mm. a horrific sentence to, to hear. She said that the stain was absolutely enormous, like across my whole butt, and none of my friends had told me. I managed to steal a jumper off someone, but it was the worst. First of all, mm. horrible friends. Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, I live by the, can you check my skirt? And for like, sure. I'll check yours. For sure. We should be trusting each other yeah. and know that our friends have our back. That's horrible. Oh, I mean, we don't know what year it was in. Yeah. If it was like year seven and you're just like getting to know your like, peers, what is that? Yeah. you're like, what is that? Also, I don't know, just the final class of the day makes me sad. Like, that's the whole day. Yeah. That's 3.15 p.m. Yeah. Like, oh, my gosh. And also some of them probably didn't know 
as much about periods mm. where they were probably like, she's dying. What is that? Yes. yes. That was year seven. <laughs> Have you got any stories? I don't because I was perfect and nothing ever went wrong for me. Oh, congrats. <laughs> yeah, but um, I do have one from my sister who, okay, she used to bite her nails a lot when she was younger and mm. my mum, to try and traumatise her to get her to stop, would say "You, the sharp parts of your nails will cut the insides of your body and you'll start bleeding out. That was her trying to be like, hey, stop biting your nails. Yeah, yeah, fair. She got a period in year five and mm. was like, oh, my God, mum was right, I'm dying. Oh. <laughs> yeah, she was so scared to tell my mum, and then she did, my mum was like, that's the right way to traumatise a child, <laughs> just to get them that's to true. stop, but also... Oh, no, yeah. poor thing. Yeah. Poor thing. That's, that's what she gets. <laughs> oh, my God, leave your sister alone, jeez. Look, for me, I never had any... I was spared also during school, but I think for me... At the time, I was kind of embarrassed about getting my period in high school and I would do that thing. I think one of the texts mentioned um, having to like improvise with sanitary products. So it really touches home that these products are available to school kids. So they're not in situations like me where you have to like what up lots of toilet paper onto your underwear and then hope it doesn't bleed through. But I think like, I don't know. My embarrassing period story was actually from like two weeks ago. Okay, It was like my last week at my former workplace and I was wearing like this nice white and black gingham dress just feeling confident like rocking it and I was going to the lift and I was like ballsy so I like kicked the door of the lifts to be like hold it for someone else and then the woman walks in and she's like you've got something on the back of your dress and then I was like damn I'm like too old to react so I was trying to play it cool like what I have to like go to the bathroom like uh (laughs) do you know how hard it is to take out period stains from clothing Especially, it, like, synthetic fabric. It doesn't come out. Yeah. It doesn't no, it is out. really hard. And also, it's hard to, like, disguise it in mm. some clothes. Mm-hmm. So, like, wrapping a, a jacket around your... Yeah, that was my go-to in primary. I in was high so school. far from my desk. I couldn't. Oh, I couldn't. Man. I literally had to go home. And I'm, like, 23. And I'm, like, how do I explain that? So, I don't know. It's just... It happens to the best of us. It happens yeah, to the best of us. It really does. Well, you're listening to Backchat on FBI 94.5, and we're talking high school period nightmares... And I don't mean English extension one. <laughs> Let us know if you've got a similar story up your sleeve. That was horrible. On 0409 945 945. But now, some music. I've been going hard, I ain't slept. Yeah, and they ain't even know what I'm a threat. That was the one and only TK Meitzer featuring Young Baby Tate with their song Kim. You're listening to Back Chat on FBI Radio 94.5. Millie and I have been sharing our hearts and our souls on all things periods in light of a new free sanitary product trial in schools across New South Wales. And you guys have been blowing up the text line, which makes Chantelle and I feel a little less alone in the world. So here are a few more period stories that haunt you to this day. Yeah, we got a text in that said, this isn't my story, but my mum's. My mum grew up in the well 60s and 70s where there was no sex education and or anything about periods. My mum was in class one day and felt something, went to the bathroom, saw blood in her pants and actually thought she was dying and she couldn't turn to anyone because no one had told her what a period was. And she felt embarrassed. I'm not sure what happened, but she's still alive, so all is good. Oh, that's good. I'm glad to hear. <laughs> and then Zaina said, I got my period just before a school concert and I was new, so I didn't have any friends and spent the whole pre-concert 
free bleeding with paper towels. Ali from Hornsby said, in year 10, I accidentally walked into the boys' toilets, somehow missed the the urinals, went into a stall and cracked open a tampon. Then I heard the voice of a 13 or 14-year-old boy in the next stall over pipe up and ask if I bought a poo snack in. Oh my god, that's truly the creme de la creme. Also, poo snacks, that's a different segment. Yes. Maybe this 13-year-old boy is ahead of the curve or something. That's something that he's done because poo snack, that's way too catchy. Oh my god. (laughs) Well, I'm glad that we could make you feel a little less alone with these stories. They should obviously be normalised and it's a good first step from the government, but uh, the next step I think should be free hygiene products for everyone like they do in Scotland. And that's on what? That's on period. <laughs> and I was doing that again. Nope. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5, your local source of news and current affairs in Sydney and beyond. Stick around because next we're breaking down the tragic case of Filipina trans woman Melody Bruno, whose killer will serve less than two years behind bars. A breadwinner, a queen, a daughter. These are some of the words to describe Melody Bruno, a Filipina trans woman who was killed two two years ago in Wagga Wagga by a former Air Force commander. Although he was sentenced with manslaughter, some people view it as murder. Earlier this week was Trans Day of Visibility, and on Monday, the queer community and Filipino diaspora rallied together at Sydney's Town Hall to mourn the loss of Ms Bruno and protest their distrust in Australia's justice system. Backchat producer Rebecca Manibog speaks to activist Nicole Catalina from Youth Diaspora Group and Akabayan about the current climate surrounding the case for Melody Bruno. Hi Nicole, can you tell us a bit about the case of Melody Bruno for our listeners who may not be aware? Yeah, absolutely. So at its very short and its most simplest, so Melanie Bruno was a trans Filipina woman who in 2019 was murdered by a former Australian Air Force corporal. Um, His name is Ryan Ross Toyer Toyer, as a resort of quote-unquote erotic asphyxiation. So on the night of her murder, she was also due to return to the Philippines the following week. So Toyer actually in the court case admitted that Bruno actually never consented to being choked to death. And recently, um, Ryan was resentenced this week to about 22 months of imprisonment. So why do we bring up this case? Firstly, we don't believe that 22 months is enough time to sentence someone who has committed an act that is very deeply anti-Asian and, and, and transphobic. And secondly, there is not enough coverage by the Australian media and the Philippine government on this matter. So we have to continually stand in solidarity with trans women and the Filipino community. Being a Filipino yourself, how has this case impacted you personally? So as a Filipina, it is absolutely emotionally taxing. And that's especially in light of this new wave of anti-Asian violence that's occurring in the United States. So speaking more specifically as someone who is Filipino-Australian, there's so many Australians who think that just because it's happening in the US, it doesn't mean it's going to happen here. But obviously it's happening here right now in Queensland. So the emotional baggage that's coming from us as Filipinas, it's sort of come from this sort of history of being subjected to a history of discrimination, fetishization, and also many other forms of um, prejudice. So this isn't new to us. Um, we've had other cases of Filipino violence. So Fabel Pineda, Christine Angelica Dacera. So we just don't deserve this violence like at all. And how did the candlelight vigil 
come about last Monday? So on Monday, it was such, it was a really great turn up. Even before the vigil happened, um, when we posted it on the Anakabayan website, um, sorry, the Instagram and yeah, on the event page as well, we just knew already there'd be a lot of people who'd show up. So the event post was shared around on Instagram, as you know, to thousands of people as well as on Facebook as well. And that was just a sign that there's just going to be a lot of support for this case. So there are many speakers who are present. Um, I do want to give a shout out to Patricia, Genesis, and Kari of Anakabayan who were able to facilitate the vigil. Um, and we've also got um, other speakers from Migrante, Gabriela, and Pride and Protest. Um, we've got Lungol, um, a Black Indigenous writer and activist, and also some of Benji's sisters to speak up on her behalf. So yeah, it was a really wonderful turnout. Obviously, we wanted to keep to Benji's promise to make this visual way to make space for Melody as well as give space for other trans people, especially trans women of colour. We wanted to make space to grieve, but also make space to honour Melody. And I also, it was really beautiful as well because in the crowd, I was able to recognise Filipinos within the Philippine Australian community. So I was able to see poets and artists and other activists that I recognize online. Um, and the allyship from non-Filipinos was also very powerful too. And both the diaspora, um, the Filipino diaspora and the trans community have united together, as you said, and you saw a lot of allies and also people part of our community. But what are other issues that um, within those communities do you think have been brought to light by this case? I think this is also an issue for overseas Filipino workers because the visual actually mentioned that Melody did previously work at a call centre. And as you would know, the Philippines has had a history of overseas Filipino workers since the brain drain in 1965. I think one of the biggest issues as overseas Filipino workers is the fact that these Filipinos have to be forced to adapt within displaced environments, especially within Western environs. I believe on a more broader level, it is a level of sexual exploitation that needs to be addressed. So during the vigil, we addressed that there was a suspicion that Melody may have been sexually exploited in Queensland. And even on a more broadly level, um, we need to remember that at the end of this, it is an issue of consent that I believe that is so deep, deeply overlooked within um, sex culture, so yeah. Lastly, the transgender community are continuing to lobby for better protection and acceptance. What are ways that we can be allies to the community as well as the Filipino diaspora community? It's, easy, it's easier said than done just to say we can stand in solidarity with these communities. But at the same time, we need to really understand what that really means. So we should always continuously give space to them never speak for their experiences, but also continually listen about their stories, their concerns and their criticisms. But so as allies um, and speaking to other allies as well, we shouldn't have to corner people into this position of trying to open up traumas in order to know more about these issues. So, yeah. That was Backchat producer Rebecca Maniborg speaking to activist Nicole Catalina about Melody Bruno's case. Before we wrap up today, we did get a text from a social worker in Redfern, the Waterloo area, in regards to our earlier story on the redevelopments. They said, I work with many people in public housing. I know that there's a very established community there and it's outrageous that public land is going to be sold to redevelopers and only 30% is going to be put forward towards public housing. I think this is totally uncalled for and an attack on the very vulnerable group of people that live there. And if you missed our investigation into Waterloo at the start of the show, 
fear not, you can catch up on our podcast via Spotify next week. And that's all we have time for on the show this week. A massive thank you to our producers, Rebecca Manibog and Tanita Rizagi. This has been Backchat, your go-to wrap for news and current affairs. Catch us next week at 9.30am and stick around for Lindsay Kimbo. You know, it's actually going to be a beautiful 26-degree day today, so here's a classic to start your sunny, long weekend. <laughs>